0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God
1: and with others. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings chapter 22. We're going to talk about the king who made a discovery that changed everything. The king who made a discovery that changed everything. We're in a series called Kings. We're nearing the end of that series. This morning and then next Sunday morning will be the conclusion of the series. We've been looking at the kings of Old Testament Israel and Judah. You recall that uh, when, the, when the kingdom was united, when there was only the kingdom of Israel made up of the 12 tribes of Israel, their first king was Saul, who reigned for approximately 40 years. Then God rejected Saul and chose David. David reigned for about 40 years. And then after he died, his son Solomon, who was uh, the son of David and Bathsheba, Solomon reigned for about 40 years. And after Solomon's reign, his son Rehoboam became king, and because of some bad decisions on his part, the kingdom split into two. The northern kingdom of Israel uh, consisted of ten tribes, the ten northernmost tribes, and the southern kingdom of Judah consisted of two tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Uh, During the 400-year history of the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel had 19 different kings, Zero of those 19 kings were godly kings. Not a single one was a king who was godly. Of the southern kingdom of Judah, there were 20 kings total in their history. And of those 20 kings, eight of them were godly kings. And one of those godly kings was a man by the name of Josiah. 2 Kings 22, we'll begin reading with verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Can you imagine that? Eight years old. Some of the kids who come for the children's sermon are eight years old. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, son of Adiah. She was from Baskoth. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and completely, and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of his reign, Josiah sent the secretary Shaphan, son of Azaliah, the son of Mishalem, to the temple of the Lord. He said, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest and have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Have them entrust it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple. And have these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord the carpenters, the builders, and the masons. Also, have them purchase timber and dress stone to repair the temple. But they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they are honest in their dealings. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphon, who read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, Your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple." Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it, read from it in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, the priest. Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Achbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's attendant, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book and that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. And then in Second Kings chapter 23 beginning with verse 1. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes and decrees with all his heart and all his soul thus confirming the words of the covenant written in the book, then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Let's pray. Our Father, remind us all over again of the power of your word. Bring us back to a reverence for the message that your word, the Bible, teaches us. Lord, lead us not to the point of worshiping the Bible as an object of worship, but bring us to the place of loving it, respecting it, and reverencing it because... It leads us to you, Lord, who is the only one worthy of our worship and following. Lord, many of us, both here at Palmetto Baptist and around the world, we who know the Bible, we know how powerful it is, we know that it's your word, we have tucked it away somewhere. And even if it sits out on the The center table of our living rooms, it's still been tucked away to the extent that it's rarely opened. Father, I pray that you'd help us to rediscover the message of your word. And help us to know that no matter where we are in life, your word can change our lives. You can use your word to change our lives. So help us, Lord, to rediscover you. In your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you this question. What do you think is the greatest discovery in all of history? If you look back through all of history, from ancient civilization up to the present time, what do you believe is the greatest discovery that's ever been made? What do you believe is the discovery that has impacted more people for good than any other discovery. You can find uh, uh, books written, you can find articles from uh, journalists and from news agencies talking about what they believe have been the greatest discoveries in the history of the world. I read uh, one report that said, uh, that said the greatest discovery in the history of the world is that was the discovery in the 1700s and 1800s that there, that there were actually causes to the diseases we have and scientists began discovering those causes. And this report contended that the causes for disease and discovering those causes was the most important discovery in the history of the world. A similar report said that it wasn't discovering the causes that, Uh, was the uh, greatest discovery, but discovering the vaccines that could deal with the causes that became, uh, to them, the greatest discovery in the history of the world. And and, uh, the point they make there is, is that when you think about Uh, diseases such as malaria or polio or measles or a lot of different diseases. You can probably name several others without the vaccines being discovered to treat those diseases. Where would we be? Someone else said that neuroimaging is the greatest discovery In the history of the world, neuroimaging is, uh, you know, uh, scans and MRIs that allow doctors and scientists to see inside the brain, which is really a good thing, because otherwise they'd have to cut your brain in half. And some of us don't have enough brain left over to cut it in half, you know, for them to look at it. So neuroimaging, some people say, was the most important discovery in the history of the world. DNA. Truly is a great discovery. Some people suggest that it, DNA, is the greatest discovery in the history of the world. I read another report that gave the top uh, ten discoveries in all of history. And among those top ten, uh, this writer said that the discovery that the earth revolves around the sun and not vice versa is the greatest discovery that has ever been made in the history of the world. Indeed, it was an important discovery. It was the teaching up to the point of Copernicus that we on earth were the center of the universe and everything revolved around us. In fact, many of us from time to time still think the world revolves around us. But truly, when it was discovered that in our solar system, the solar system doesn't revolve around us, but rather we revolve around the sun, it was a great discovery. Discovery. The human genome, by some, is said to be the greatest discovery, and yet we haven't yet uh, mined all of the impact that the discovery of the human genome will have on the human race. Some people say that Benjamin Franklin's discovery of electricity was the greatest discovery. Others say that Hubble's discovery in the early 20th century, that the universe is expanding at an astronomical rate in every Uh, Outward direction was the greatest discovery of history. Oprah Winfrey said that the greatest discovery of all time is that a person can change his or her future by merely changing his or her attitude. What do you believe is the greatest discovery of all time? Back in the 600s B.C., about 2,600 plus years ago, there was a king by the name of Josiah. Josiah became king when he was only eight years old. And when he was 26 years old, the Bible says that he'd been king 18 years and he told uh his servants he said i want you to go get the money that we've been uh, taking up they've been collecting money to make needed repairs to the temple he said i want you to take that money and distribute it to the contractors the the uh, construction guys the brick masons uh, all the people involved with with renovating the temple and he said I, I want you to go and get that money and divide it among them well The person who went to get this money that was collected in the temple, while he was there, he also made a search of some of the storage areas and he found a book. It had been uh, tucked away for literally centuries and had not been opened, had not been used. There's no telling how bad a condition it must have been in, but this person took this book and he opened it and he read it and he recognized that it was the book of the law. Now, uh, we don't know uh, because we're not told exactly uh, how much of the law was in this book, whether it was all of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those first five books of the Bible are what uh, Orthodox Jews call the Torah, which is a word that means the law. We don't know if all five of those books were in this one book that was discovered or if it just had uh, the uh, The Ten Words, which is what the ancient Jews call, what we call the Ten Commandments. You have the Ten Commandments and then the Book of the Covenant that expands on those Ten Commandments. That's all in in Exodus, Deuteronomy, and in Leviticus. We don't know exactly what was in it, but what we do know was that some portion, if not all, of the law of God, which was in the first five books of the Bible, was found in that storage area. And the man who found it read it. And it troubled him. It troubled him because he knew that this was a message from God. This was God's law to God's people. And he knew that this law had not been read in a long, long time. And he knew that because it hadn't been read in a long, long time, people had gotten away from the Bible, from the law. And so the book was brought to the secretary of the king. He read it. He felt the same way later on. He brought the book to the king and he read it to the king. And when the king heard the message, when Josiah heard this message, he ripped his clothes, which was a sign in ancient times of mourning and deep weeping and a desire to humble oneself before God. That's what uh, ripping or tearing one's robe meant. And uh, Josiah immediately ripped his robe in two because he realized that that for a long time, the people of Judah had not been following the words of the law. Let me tell you a little bit about Josiah. Josiah, as you know, became king at age 8. He became king at a time of crisis. His father, Amon, who was not a good king, was assassinated. And Josiah, at eight years old, had to deal within one week's time with the assassination of his father and the ascension to the throne at age eight. This young uh, boy had an enormous amount on him, uh, at the point that, where he came, became king. He reigned for 31 years. He is credited with reestablishing the, important, the importance of the Scriptures during a reform that he initiated uh, in the southern kingdom of Judah. And he is in the family tree, according to the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, he's in the family tree of the Lord Jesus. He's in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. But 2 Kings 22, verse 2, summarizes his reign and his legacy with these words. Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Josiah was a good king. And he was a good king because of the discovery that his uh, staff made and Josiah's response to the discovery of that book of the law. There are three things that, uh, three lessons we learn from Josiah here in this instance that I think are important for us. And the first of these lessons is this. Nobody ever has to be forever saddled with the legacy of his or her forebearers. You don't have to forever be saddled with whatever the legacy of your family is if that legacy is not so good. And you don't have to be forever saddled with a bad reputation because of something you did or something you said or something somebody caught you doing. A lot of times, when especially we as Christians who've been raised in uh, church and we've been taught from the Bible and and we've been we've been uh, exposed to the gospel and to the message of Christ and to how to live right, when we fail, when we make a serious commit a serious sin, sometimes we get the feeling, the idea, that we will be forever saddled with whatever the reputation that that serious sin gave us. We will be forever saddled with it. We will be forever known by it. And the Bible clearly tells us that that is not the case. We don't have to stay in a bad reputation. We don't have to be forever saddled with some dark cloud that somebody, whether family or friend or enemy or whoever, has put over us. You don't have to do that. Josiah's father, Ammon, was one of the most wicked kings. His uh, grandfather, Manasseh, the most wicked king. Uh, He is in the line of Hezekiah, who was a good king, but before Hezekiah, there were kings, one after another, who were terrible kings. And so had Josiah followed through with the legacy that the majority of his family had left him, he would have been forever an evil king. He would have been someone who, hey, that that book you found in the storage room, go put that thing back. I'd just soon read comic strips, right? That's what he could have said, but he didn't because Josiah believed... And you and I need to believe that we don't have to be saddled with a bad legacy. We don't have to be saddled with a bad reputation. We have the choice now while we're living. We have the choice of how we will be remembered. The second thing I want you to note is this. The best discovery anyone can make in life is to discover the message of the Bible. Now, why is that? Why is it that the Bible is the greatest discovery in the history of the world? Why is it that the Bible is one thing that once you discover it, discover its message, it can change your life for the better when you read it and when you follow it and when you digest it and when you understand it? Why is that? Well, uh, because... The Bible is God's Word. That's number one. And because, secondly, and this is the most important thing about the Bible, the Bible points us to Jesus. Now, I want you to hear me say something right here. And please don't misunderstand me. So, if if, if you're thinking about checking out this message, don't check out at this very point, okay? Because I want you to get this. Are you ready for this? Love the Bible, reverence the Bible, read the Bible, study the Bible, and follow the Bible, but don't worship. The Bible. The Bible is not meant to be an object of worship. It is meant to be a message from God that we follow that points us to the person, that is Jesus, who is and alone is worthy of our worship. I believe. Now, of course, this this sounds odd because this is a message about loving the Bible and rediscovering the Bible. And that's what I'm encouraging you to do. But I want you to do it the right way. Because there is a danger, and I think it's especially a danger among the the churches of our denomination. There is a danger of making the Bible an idol. It's called bibliolatry, worshiping the Bible rather than Jesus of the Bible. I was in a Christian ethics class Uh, teaching a Christian ethics class at Bruton Parker College back in uh, September and October. And on the first day of class, there was a class of about 10 students in that class. And I started out the class by asking this. I said, I want you to take out a sheet of paper and I want you to write down the definition of Christian ethics. Christian ethics. And they spent some time writing it down. I gave them some time to write it down. And when they were through, we went around the room And I asked people to read what they had written down. What is the definition of Christian ethics? Invariably, all the way around the room, everybody gave a definition that was something like this. Christian ethics is doing the right thing in a given situation based upon the principles of the Bible. I mean, nine of the ten students... That was, with maybe a difference of a word or two, that was the definition. Determining the right thing to do in a given situation based upon principles in the Bible. That's a great definition on the surface. But my question was, what is your definition to Christian ethics? There was one lady there, who, and she was the oldest member of the class. She was in her 70s, a retired schoolteacher. And she was taking this class, Christian Ethics, and she said this. She said, Christian Ethics is determining the right thing to do in a given situation based upon principles in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, and in the New Testament, especially the writings of Paul. I thought that was really an interesting definition. Now, here's what what saddened me about every one of those definitions. Not a single student in that class Mention the word Jesus in their definition or the word Christ in their definition or Lord in their definition or Jesus Christ in their definition. You say, well, what does that matter? They mentioned the Bible. The reason it matters is for those students, it appeared to me now that they would probably disagree with this in, to, their, to their in their defense. But their definition said to me, we care more about the Bible than we do about Jesus. The Bible is more important. It's more important that we mention in a definition of Christian ethics the Bible than it is for us to mention Jesus. You see, the real definition of Christian ethics is this. It is determining the right thing to do in a given situation based upon principles in the Bible as they are filtered through the life and teaching and ministry of Jesus Christ. To me, Christian ethics... Must, I mean it must necessarily include Jesus front and center in its definition. If we don't have Jesus front and center, then what are we using the Bible for? The Bible's message is God's love for a sinful humanity that he bestows in its highest form by sending Jesus, his Son, God in flesh, to the earth to be our Savior and our Lord. The Bible is the greatest discovery anybody can make when we use it not as an object of worship, but as a a wonderful word from God that points us to the Savior and Lord of all creation and of our lives. You see, Josiah did not agree with being saddled with a legacy that would leave him as someone recorded as having been evil. Instead, upon discovering the law, the law, which also points ahead to Jesus, even though though it doesn't mention the name Jesus, it points to Jesus, it foreshadows Jesus, and Josiah, upon discovering that law, realized the change that could be made if he and his subjects turned to God and followed the law. Well, when he was uh, 39 years old, Josiah heard that the the king of Pharaoh, his name was Pharaoh Necho, was going up to fight the Assyrian army. And Josiah did not think that battle should take place. And although he was warned by the prophets of God not to intervene, Josiah decided to take his army and lead them personally to battle to head off the Egyptian army. And in the process, he was mortally wounded. He was killed in the battle. Now, he'd already, took, he'd already taken the word of God and he had started a revival you see, the word of the revival in the church begins when people rediscover the message of the Bible, which is the way of Jesus. And he had started that from looking at the book of the law. But now he was killed because he went into a battle he was told by God's messengers not to go into. And So the final point I want you to see in this is this revival is short-lived unless it is established in the lives of people. You know what we really like to do? Here's what we'd really like to do. For instance, it's the same thing we like to do with exercise. You know, uh, if I realize, you know, I'm out of shape, I want to exercise really hard for a week and be back in shape and not have to exercise again for the rest of my life. Right? I want it to be a one-time event, or restricted to a narrow period of time event that I can engage in and be done with it, right? And we're kind of that same way with the Bible. We'd like to hit it, and it just changed our lives, and we kind of lay it back on the shelf and have our lives remain changed. But here's the problem with that. That's not the way it works. You see, reading, studying, digesting, and following the Bible is not a one-time event. It must be an ongoing, lifelong endeavor. And that is the only way the Bible can change your life and have lasting impact. When Josiah died the chief flag bearer for this revival movement based upon the rediscovery of the Scriptures, died. And when his son succeeded him, his son took them back into idolatry, put the Scriptures back in the storage room, up on a shelf, dusty, crusty, not to be opened again. You see, God wants us in these days, to rediscover His Word. And by rediscovering His Word, we rediscover the Christ of the Word. And by rediscovering Christ in God's Word, God changes our lives, especially as we make the study of His Word and the following of Jesus an ongoing, lifelong endeavor. And so I leave you with this question, and I'm asking myself this question at the same time. Would you commit yourself to rediscovering the message of God's Word? Would you do that? And commit to doing it on an ongoing, lifelong basis? Do you believe that it could change your life? Do you believe... That getting back into God's word can change your life in monumental ways? It can. It will. God wants it to happen in our lives. But it will not happen unless we rediscover his word, and in particular, the Jesus of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to rediscover your word, not as an idol to be worshipped, but as a message to be heard and studied and digested and camped out with as a lifelong endeavor. And Lord, help us to discover again you, Lord, Jesus in God's word. Lord, Your Word teaches us about our lostness. Your Word teaches us that we, lost in sin, cannot save ourselves. Your Word teaches us that You sent Jesus to deal with our lostness and our sin problems so that we could have eternal life. And You give that eternal life to us if we will receive it. And You don't require that we work for it, be good enough for it, that we check off a series of commands. Lord, You give it to us freely. Because your son paid the price for our sins. And Lord, I can't think of a better gift to receive at Christmas time than the gift of eternal salvation that is offered to us by you. So Lord, I pray that someone here would realize that he or she is lost without you and say, Hey, I want to invite Christ into my life to save me and to be my Lord. To give me eternal life. And Lord, for those of us who already have a relationship with you, we've already been saved, you're already in our lives, I pray that you'd help us to make the commitment to rediscover your word for our lives. It'll be the greatest discovery we'll ever make. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.
0: And I am the- I have heard the high voice, and it's all thy love to me. But I long to rise in the arms of faith and be drawn closer to thee. Draw me nearer. And draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross. that has Draw me nearer, nearer the lesson, Lord, to the Quran.
1: Be seated. Our ushers come receive our offering. If you filled out a guest card, now's the time to put it in the offering plate. If you filled out a response on the back of the guest card, you can fold it up. Uh, Now's the time to put that in the offering plate as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for the opportunity to give and to give as an act of worship. And so, Lord, we uh, thank you for what you have given us. And from what you've given us, we give back to you, Lord, because we love you. As a sign that we put you first, as a sign that we trust you with what you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen.